Hi, I'm Neil Moody, host of In Bed with Neil Moody. Today's episode is the first of a two-parter that are both being released today. I'm interviewing two sisters who grew up separately, author, journalist Gavandra Hodge and celebrity LA hairstylist Miranda Woodland. My connection with Gavandra and Miranda is that I worked for their celebrity hairdresser father Gavin Hodge in two of his salons back in the 90s. I reconnected with Gavandra recently after 30 years when a mutual friend realised we knew each other and who put me in touch with Miranda too. My guest on this episode is the wonderful Gavandra. Gavandra has worked in newspapers and magazines for over 20 years, including the Daily Mail, The Independent and ES magazine. She was the deputy editor and acting editor of Tatler, but in 2018 she left Tatler and became a freelance writer, contributing to publications including The Sunday Times, The Times and The Telegraph. She currently writes a column for The Times Lux magazine. In 2020, during the first Covid lockdown of the UK, Gravandra released her first ever book, The Consequences of Love, a memoir which examines grief, addiction, trauma and what it means to come to terms with the past. Her book became an instant bestseller and catapulted Gavandra into the spotlight as she shared her story about not only growing up with her father Gavin Hodge, who was one of the first celebrity hairdressers in the swinging 60s of London and packed into his life an inordinate amount of drink, drugs and sex, but also how amongst all the chaos of her teenage life, her younger sister Candy sadly passed away suddenly whilst on a family holiday. Gavandra and I discuss her life, her father and her book. Hi, Cavandra, lovely to see you. Hello, Neil. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for walking to King's Cross yes. today. As you heard in my intro, our connection goes back from a long time ago, in the sort of 80s, really. Yeah. You know, we were brought back together and connected again through a mutual friend of ours called uh, Ross, who is a PR. Ross actually is very good friends with your sister, Miranda. Yes. Half-sister, Miranda. Who's a hairdresser in Los Angeles. Who's a, yeah. Uh, very successful as yes, well, I heard. mega successful. Yeah, <laughs> and works with lots of famous people. That's right. Lots of <laughs> and just to let everybody know that's listening, I am going to be interviewing Miranda separately. And the plan was, was to interview Gavandra and Miranda together, but because their lives were so separated for a long time, I felt that bringing them together meant it would have probably, A, made the podcast probably about five hours long. Yes. But also, just because your lives growing up were so different, it was I yeah. felt that it was easier to talk about them separately rather yes. than try and intertwine them together. So we are here, just the two of us. Gavandra, your book, which is now like a bestseller. It's so all right, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was, it's funny because I was checking out reviews on it yes. recently just because I was like, let me hear what people, I mean, people were saying it was the must-read memoir of 2021. Somebody said it was one of the best books that they've ever read about grief, which I thought was really interesting because there's so many books out there yes. about that conversation isn't there i wanted to know from you sort of stepping outside of the look a bit of it the book a bit it's like what are your fondest memories of actually growing up i mean so what was interesting about writing the book and talking about dad and it's always we focus on the the chaos and the sadness so 
dad, uh, I mean, as you know, because you work with him, was a really huge character. He was a hairdresser, but he was also, he had quite bohemian, and I had quite a bohemian upbringing. When I was very little, dad was selling heroin to aristocrats, and then my sister died. So it was all sort of sadness and chaos and tragedy. But actually, in many ways, my childhood was really fun and really happy and really loving, because dad was a playful, funny childish kind man who mm. always made me laugh and included me like he never treated me like a child like dad yeah. was very good at being on the level with whoever he was with which I think is a hairdresser's skill isn't it like yeah, you can totally. talk to whoever mm. you're with and you can make them feel like you're kind of you understand them and he was like that with kids and he was like that with a duchess and he was like that with a pop star he could always sort of sort of really connect with you so you know my fondest memories are things like sitting on the sofa with dad late at night watching only fools and horses you know having squirty cream squirted in my mouth like so much that i couldn't breathe because you know <laughs> he was always like let's eat let's drink let's be you know he lived in the moment and he lived for mm. pleasure and sometimes that tipped into behavior that was unacceptable because he was an addict but a lot of the time you know it's fun to eat lots of salami and have nice wine and watch telly and slob out and you know mm. just be happy and so a lot of my memories of my childhood are of that part of it which mm. was fun and happy and also a lot of my memories of my childhood were of a hairdressing salon so dad yeah. was a hairdresser he, he was from Bromley as well wasn't he, he was from Bromley because so... he was a bit of a South London geezer yeah wasn't he? yeah well what was funny about dad and I think again this is quite a classic uh, hairdresser thing is you, you you can fit into any situation so dad was from Bromley from South London chucked out of school when he was 12 years old but his accent would change depending on who he was talking to <laughs> so when we get into the back of a black cab to get home from the salon in Knightsbridge to go back to Battersea like he'd be all like oh, all right mate yeah yeah and then when you know all these sort of swanky people would arrive in the salon be like oh hello yes do sit down can I, <laughs> can I get you a champagne yeah. and I was like it's like he's a different person mm. um, so yeah so dad was originally from Bromley I started his apprentice at Leonard's in Mayfair at the age of 16 mm. and I still actually have the bit of the agreement that his father my granddad signed with Leonard's about his apprenticeship mm. at Leonard's and that's where he Leonard's was one of those places, it was a bit like Sassoon's, where it was all about the updos for the posh ladies, yeah. and they would come and get their hair done three times a week, and it was just sort of doing amazing chignons to get them ready for the parties, because that kind of hair was so complicated, you wouldn't do it by yourself. Yeah. So you had to go into a salon to have it done. So that was the kind of stuff that Dad was starting off doing, and then subsequently he he ran his own salons and so my one of my earliest memories is like the smell of perming solution <laughs> the sort of hair swilling around with Lots hair of hairspray yeah hairspray and yeah. also you know when there's just hair dryers and lots of hair everywhere and hair being brushed the whole time and because i worked as a junior which would be where we met for dad when he had three salons one in soho one in camden and one in Covent garden mm. And I worked as a junior from the age of about 11. Wow. And I wasn't a very good junior. I do remember <laughs> a lot of times washing people's hair and like just getting water all the time. <laughs> you know, but anyway. But probably because of your age, you probably got let off. Yeah, time. but I mean also, I mean, so I clearly was not going to become a hairdresser. That was mm. never going to be my life choice. But just the kind of the atmosphere of those places felt incredibly familiar to me and really 
sort of like home. So, and then dad died 12 years ago and he, he'd he been the only person in my whole life who'd ever done my hair. Mm. And it's an incredible thing. Yeah, it's such a personal, intimate act. He did my hair on my wedding day. Like no one else had ever done my hair. I mean, mm. it, by the end of it, like the blonde, the beach blonde highlights are starting to look a bit tired. Cause it's sort of, you know, I was like, dad, I've been doing my hair in the same way since I was 14. <laughs> and just before his funeral, um, and I was working at the Evening Stand at the time, um, the lovely beauty editor, I was like, I need to get someone else to do my hair. Mm. And so they organised me to go to a salon in Sloan Square and Debbie Bomick and John Vial did my hair. Mm-hmm. And it was such a wonderful, like in the two weeks I had to organise my dad's funeral, Going to a hairdresser's just made me feel so happy and so secure and so safe. Like, I walked into that place. I was like, really, really, like, I relaxed. I was like, oh, I know where I am. Mm. This feels like it's home to me. And just the way that hairdressers talk to you, which is so comforting and so mm. nice and so kind. And you just feel so looked after. I kind of walked out of there thinking, wow, I can do this. I can yeah. organise my dad's funeral. And now my hair looks great. And the wonderful thing is they've continued to do my hair yeah. ever since. So it's like they sort of adopted me, this poor yeah. hairdresser's daughter who lost her dad. So yeah, so memories of my childhood are of dad. And obviously, you know, my little sister, my big sister, Miranda, who when I was growing up lived in Sweden because mm-hmm. she was uh, the child of dad's second marriage to a Swedish model who he met on a beach in Marbella. Mm. Uh, so we didn't really grow up together, but occasionally she'd come and spend some time with us. Mm. So it was a it was a bohemian childhood and with moments of chaos and fear and moments of real tragedy. So my sister died when I was 14 and she was nine. But the sort of everyday vibe was sort of loving, happy, I would suggest. Yeah. It's funny because I worked for your dad in the salon in Covent Garden. Right, yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, he had three salons. Garrick Street. Yeah, Garrick Street. And then he had the one, I think one of the first sort of proper salons in Soho. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the 80s and Darren who was my then partner who we moved to London together mm. he went to work in the one in Soho yeah and actually Darren got the job first with your father and mm. then I was working somewhere else and was a bit um sort of just not happy and mm. then Darren said why don't you work for Gavin in Covent yeah. Garden I'll speak to him and yeah and it's funny because Gavin was based in the one in Soho so I didn't yes. see him as often and I probably got to know him better when a few years later I went to work in the one in Knightsbridge. Yes, Beach and Place. Beach and Place. But he had all three at one point, didn't he? He had all three. Well, he had Garrick Street, Soho and Camden, actually. And then he got rid of those. And then he just had the basement in, in Knightsbridge, in right. Beach and Place, which had mm. been Sweeney's, which I think was quite, again, like a famous yeah. 60s, 70s, kind of quite rocker sort yeah. of hairdressing salon. That when Dad took it over, became mm. a bit sort of... It's not that it wasn't ritzy, but just had a slightly different yeah. vibe. And then also it then had a even, again, a slightly different vibe because we got to a stage where me and my school friends would go down after school and sit there, <laughs> which you probably remember. I do remember well. there in our school <laughs> uniforms, waiting for the clients to leave, or not in fact waiting for the clients to leave, so we could drink wine, smoke cigarettes, and then when the clients did leave, Dad would give us all drugs. Yeah. So yeah, happy days. <laughs> and, uh, and, actually, and the funny thing is as well, We'll come back to that in a minute. When I um, when I was working in Garrick Street, mm. your mum was oh, your mum was model agent. She was a model agent then, wasn't she? Take she two. had been a model before. Yes, that's right. Jan. Yeah. So um, mum had been a model. 
in the 60s and then in the 80s when dad had the salons she was a model agent with take two which was also on garrick street so that's mm-hmm. sort of where it was all happening yeah because we everybody from take two used to come and get yeah. their hair done with us yeah so because charlotte of, western yeah annabelle schofield totally, all those amazing yeah. people they were always in there and yeah. i think i did your mom's hair a few times because mm. it was literally a question of whoever was free would do yeah. one of their hair and even I remember meeting Fran Cutler. Yes, that's right. Then, yeah, yeah. She was, I think, not interning, but she was like office no, junior, she, wasn't no, she? No, no, what something? she did is because um, Gabriella, who was one of the agents, had a car accident and she was fine, but she had to be off work for a little while. So Fran came in and covered for her that's right. for a few months. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. But then it was it all got a little bit sticky because I was clubbing quite a lot at that stage and I was also... So like slightly lying to my parents not so much my dad he didn't care but my mum actually did want me to come home and go to sleep and you know be ready for school when I was like 14 15 16 my best friend became started going out with a DJ who and so we just started clubbing going to subterranea going all around and Fran was always at all the clubs <laughs> she, <laughs> she would see me and she would sometimes tell my mum that she'd seen me out and about oh right but I was like no, don't do that. Please. Yeah, and then please. she stopped. But exactly, it's like my mum's not actually meant to know that I'm <laughs> at Subterranea on a Wednesday night. Yeah. <laughs> God, how funny. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I remember because I, I think because I, I just starting out street and Fran used to, I used to blow dry Fran's hair. Yeah. For her because um, the other, I wasn't as busy as the other guys having mm. just started there. So yeah, I, I'm known Fran a long time. Yeah. Um, funny enough, saw recently at a wedding. Your dad. Mm-hmm. He was known, wasn't he? And I only know this because I remember hearing, and I you mentioned this in your book as well, mm. that he eloped with one of his clients. Yes. And she, it was on News at 10. That's right. So <laughs> she, he did the hair at the Queen Charlotte's Ball, which they don't have anymore. So this was the big ball for the debutantes. And it was a classic sort of, you know, Cockney hairdresser runs off with posh girl story that they were very into at the time. And that mm. seemed to kind of, you know, be a, a sort of a class clash that people were quite into. So dad did the hair and one of the girls that he did the hair of was called Jane Harries and she was 16 years old. And dad and she fell in love and I think he was 24 and they ran away to get married to wherever it is that you go, Granada, I can't remember. And then they ended up... Gretna Green? Gretna, no, the one... The, oh, the um, one abroad. Abroad, Gibraltar. Right. They went to Gibraltar to get married and then they went to hang out with Brian Jones in Morocco <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I think Dad says that it's um, Jane and possibly Brian who introduced him to heroin and before that he was quite straight. I, I'm not right. sure I believe that. Oh, right, <laughs> <laughs> he was full of stories. He also said that the character, the Warren Beatty character, but the hairdresser character was based on him in shampoo. Him yeah, that. he was quite proud of that. Yeah, he said to me that they discussed things with him as like a yeah, <laughs> the, the philandering per, the personality traits. Yes, the really. philandering hairdresser. Yeah, yeah. Jane died, didn't she? Yeah, she died. Yeah. They had quite a fast life. They crashed cars, like tore through her inheritance separated and she ended up with a big addiction problem um, mm. and ended up uh, in a I think a motorway service station having an overdose yeah it's super tragic mm, really so sad, really awful it? she's beautiful and golden because your dad then lived he lived in Marbella didn't he yes and I think he was so, so broken hearted by everything that had happened he went to Marbella which was at the time quite an odd place because it was still under the control of Franco so mm. you know it's quite 
not very libertarian and yet it became this magnet for kind of hippies and freaks mm. so he moved down to Marbella oh, he, he drove down there on a motorbike and sort of rocked up in Marbella with all the bits falling off the motorbike as his friend the wonderful writer Mim Scala remembers mm. and uh, and then he sort of hung out there for a few years opened a salon called Gatama which was sort of the very much part of the Marbella scene met Miranda's mum Kirsten on the beach he couldn't speak Swedish she couldn't speak English but they spoke the language of love exactly and low Miranda but you mention actually in the book again that Miranda was born an addict she was yes she was um this is what she told me and she had to have a second belly button so she was born in Sweden her mum had moved to back to Sweden to have the baby Mm. and because Kirsten was an addict um, it was in Miranda's bloodstream when she was born, so they had to give her a kind of blood infusion mm. and clean, clean her blood so she wouldn't, you know, yeah. be an addict. And probably survive as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Listening to the book again, because I've read it once before, I read the hardback and then I was yeah. listening to the audio, which was really nice to hear you chattering, chattering away. away, actually. <laughs> In a way, I've written this down, your dad, it was a bit sexy beast, wasn't it, in a way? You know, that sort of character of, um, you know, because he was mixing with gangsters. And I know you said you met them in London and had all these things when you were like a teenager going to San Lorenzo. Yes, but I mean, Marbella was very much that kind of place. You know, Kenneth Noy, dad knew, who was one of the Brinksmat robbers, and Kenneth Noy lived in Marbella. So dad just sort of hung out. And again, it's this idea of hanging out with the high and the low you know but yeah. and also at the time there was this kind of mixing of like the craze with you know posh girls and it was just this sort of really kind of electric moment in london of everyone sort of if you were cool enough and, and good looking enough you all went to the same nightclubs and yeah. then you all became friends but then also the kind of the underworld connections that dad had i guess were the thing that then compelled him to start being a drug dealer mm. because then you know he had the connections he could do yeah. that and you know we glamorize it but there were moments where it was scary and weird and mm. you know but in retrospect and in from the safety of being a 46 year old woman with you know who isn't involved in the criminal underworld <laughs> <laughs> I just like to add. Yeah. Uh, it was FYI. Quite, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's sort of there's a there's a sort of a pattern of glamour attached mm. to it. Because it's funny because when I went to work for your dad, it was the late in this is the second time around in Knightsbridge. It was late eighties. Yeah. I think. And I because when you first worked for him, it was all AA and NA, wasn't it? Like totally. Everyone in the salon. Everyone in the salon was. Yeah. He was. And he vote, and I think he did that almost as an uh, part of what he wanted to do with those salons was to give people from NA and AA jobs. Yeah. So it became, and that was a rather wonderful thing to do. That was quite a powerful yeah. thing to do. No, it was amazing. I almost felt a bit left out that I wasn't <laughs> NA and oh, AA, to be honest. And neither was Darren either. Yeah, you know what, yeah. Yeah, what are they talking about, Step 8? Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I know. We were a bit like, is that a dance move? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? We didn't really know. But obviously, some of them became our friends. Yeah, it was amazing that he did that. And then, when I went to, I basically then went to work in Knightsbridge for a mm. while for a company. I actually got fired, um, funny enough, which all Silly the best them. people do. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I remember just suddenly was like, shit, I haven't got a job. Yeah. And, and I think, if I remember, I think I called Gavin to say, do you have any jobs? And he mm. went, where are you? And I said, I'm in Knightsbridge, I've just been fired. He went, come and see me. Yeah, yeah. Place. And I went down there and then following week I was working there. Yeah. But it was funny because 
I felt straight away as soon as I went to work that the atmosphere was so different. Yes, to... yeah, yeah. Because it's after my sister had died. So my dad was clean. My dad was an addict until I was about nine, ten, and he got clean, and he was clean until I was fourteen, which is when my sister died. And the, mm. my sister died in a hotel room in Tunisia, and the day in, in dad's arms, basically. Mm. And the day after, the first thing he did was he went down to the bar, got himself a bottle of whiskey, and drank the whole thing. Mm. And it was like a flip. You know, the switch had been flipped in his soul and he couldn't deal with the pain. And what addicts do when they can't deal with pain is they use again. Yeah. So he was right back in there super fast. And so when you when you came back and you saw him, that's what that was the change that had happened. Mm. And he had he'd gone right back, you know. Yeah. And he and also the it was different again because, you know, dad was dad started out with that kind of stuff in the seventies and early eighties, where it was all kind of heroin and cocaine. But then by the time second time around he was like, Ecstasy's amazing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Like the, the music he was listening to, I was like, God, this music, Dad, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Because <laughs> I was still listening to Janis Joplin, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I remember, because I remember one, because obviously I was partying a lot then, mm-hmm. and I remember going out one weekend, and I'd taken acid for the first time, and it was, I'd had the most awful oh, experience yeah, yeah. with it. Yeah. And I have to say, I've never touched it since. Mm-hmm. And... But I remember going to work on the Monday mm. and your dad was like, how was the weekend? I was like, oh, God, I've had the most awful time. Whatever. And he went, Neil, you shouldn't take acid in a club with loads of strobing mm. lights. He was like, you need to be out in the countryside with your best mates. Somewhere yeah. really gorgeous. And you will have a completely different experience. And I was like, now there's a man who knows what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, and also he always could sort of say, oh, if you're feeling like this, if I come home and I was feeling quite sort of wired, he'd be like, no, no, what you need now is I'll make you the, exactly the right joint for you right now. Yeah. To, to calm you down so he's mm. almost like a sort of drug doctor yeah <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a terrible thing to say yeah but uh but yeah. how do you like <laughs> talking about that now and obviously you talk about it in the book as well which mm. by the way please read it's such a brilliant read it's called the consequences of love yes just put that in <laughs> just put that in there <laughs> like when you think about it now does it just seem like madness to you, all that? Or I guess, well, at the time it was your normality, wasn't it? This is the problem. It's not the problem. This is the thing. And, you know, I can talk about this stuff with people who come from very straight backgrounds and they find it so extraordinary. But then this was my normality and I'm not the only one. You know, a lot of us who grew up around Chelsea, you know, in the 80s had this. I know other kids who had not dissimilar sort of situations to me. And yeah, it's bonkers, but it's reality. You know, this yeah. is some people's reality. And the fact is I was lucky because there was never any violence. And, you know, I was still being fed and going to school, you know, in houses where there's lots of drugs and addiction. Mm. It can, you know, it was often scary and often chaotic. And I found myself not knowing where I stood in the world. Yeah, But it could have been a hell of a lot worse. And I'm very aware of that. I'm very mm. aware that... You know, because I had school and I had friends, I was sort of, and also my own sense, my own kind of inner compass of like self-protection that I, you know, I was okay ultimately, but Mm. that's not the case for everyone. No, because I think, what age were you when you, or can you remember what age you were when you first started or were being introduced to drugs? 13, 14. Yeah. So Candy had died when I was 14 and I was at a posh girls day school in Hammersmith 
but it was Godolphin quite Latin, Godolphin Latin, but it's yeah. quite druggy, you know. We were, we were, um, people well, don't... Would you say that's because of the parents that... No, that's just the, time. just the time. I just think it's, I, just, I don't mean, I don't know what kids are like these days, and mine are too small. <laughs> you know, it, we were inhaling hairspray on the yes. roof of the car park through a towel. I'd bring a towel into school, go mm. and nick a bottle of Natrell from Superdrug and inhale <laughs> it on the top. I'd be like, this is amazing. Not knowing that this is, I mean, that is probably more dangerous than doing cocaine. Mm. I mean, inhaling hairspray is a terrible thing to do. And I'd go to people's house. It was just quite a decadent time. I'd go to people's houses. Houses. I remember there's this one guy called Jules who was at the French Lycée and he, they, they had this big house I think in Clapham his parents they'd just gone away and these sort of 16 year olds were just like slobbing around in this house and they would do things like you know lighter fuel they would inhale lighter fuel they yeah. were just sort of flopping around doing all that crazy Sorry. stuff <laughs> and exactly <laughs> the thought of it makes you sneeze <laughs> So, yeah, that's the thought of hairspray. <laughs> so it wasn't. It definitely wasn't just me. It definitely felt like there was a moment in London, and it was also all happening with house and acid house and raves, and it was, it was just kind of quite a decadent moment. I yeah. think it's probably so. That moment coincides a bit like Dad's decadent moment when he was hanging out in Sevillas with mm. Brian Jones and whatever. So that it was quite a druggy, music fueled, crazy time mm. that sort of Dad was into and I was already getting into it a little bit but then dad was very much he said to me one of the first thing one of the things he said to me is I would prefer you to get drugs from me than on the streets at least I'll know where you're getting them from and then he just started giving me first of all hash you know quite old school hash that you had to sort of light with a lighter and candle. Yeah, yeah. And this podcast is all about drugs now isn't it <laughs> No. <laughs> we'll move on. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> Drugs and hair. I mean, I suppose, you know, hairdressers, there has been like a decadent thing yeah. that goes on. And then speed and then coke and then, mm. you know. Yeah. And I've lost my train of thought. I mean, that was the sneeze. Yeah, we're just drinking water here as well. We are we? just yes. drinking water. Yeah. Uh, do you drink now, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah, love okay. a nice drink. Love a nice glass of red wine. Looking forward to having one later. <laughs> You could have had one now yeah. if you wanted. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was saying well, that was your normality. Yes. How did you... Because obviously you went to Godolphin Latimer, which yeah. is known as a sort of... Academic. You know, academic yeah. posh school. Mm. How come you ended up going there, obviously, with your father's background? Sure. Did that be more to do with your mum? Yeah. I, I mean, have to say, I didn't know your mum as well. Mum was definitely... So dad was the extrovert and mum was the introvert. And mum was clever, but had left school at 16 to become a model. Mm. Uh, so I had felt like that part of her life had never really... Been, she'd never been allowed to explore that part mm. of her. Because you grew up in Battersea, didn't we you? We grew up in Battersea. I mean, we started in Chelsea, then we moved across to Battersea. And I'd gone to a state school in Chelsea. And they sort of said, oh, Gavandra's quite bright. Mm. And I think because it, it, it sort of coincided with when my parents were straight. So, you know, my parents were... My mum wasn't drinking. My dad wasn't taking drugs when I was 10, 11, 12. And that meant that mum had the wherewithal. And at that time, she was working in the agency at Take Two to think, well, I'm going to try and, and see if Vandra can go to this sort of school, mm. see if we can get her into one of these sorts of schools. You know, and this is also the time when to go to a private school didn't cost £8,000 a term. Yeah. It cost, you know, you could go there if you were the daughter of a hairdresser. Mm. You can't now. I don't mm. I mean, unless you're a really successful hairdresser. <laughs> I went to this really good school where I discovered that I was quite bright and I liked it's not so much being bright my, my dad was super bright he mm. had proper street smarts but I was academically bright which is yeah. a certain kind of intelligence which mm. I happen to possess and I really discovered I really loved things like Latin and chemistry and I think that was partly to do with 
the order of those kind of things. There's kind of an order being imposed on chaos yeah. with those things. And I discovered I just really enjoyed them and they made me feel very happy and safe mm. in a way that I hadn't felt as a child. That was a big part of my life. And, the, and one of the, the sort of the sad things, and the, but also the inevitable things, is that so when Candy died and Dad sort of, he went off the rails. My mum very much didn't. She remained, she stayed sober and she became a born-again Christian. So she sort of sought another way out of her, her mm. pain and her grief. When I started partying with Dad, I sort of stopped concentrating in school. But I thought that I was so, sort of, I thought I could get away with it. I thought I could, you know, go to a nightclub three nights a week and only go to school two days a week and still do really one of my GCSEs. And I really couldn't. Mm. So, um, However, you didn't do too bad no, in the GCSEs. I, I, mean, no, but I just you? got really angry. You know, I just, I, there were, it wasn't what I had been, mm. you know. And, and I kind of got... I just didn't do as well as I thought I was going to do. And my teachers were disappointed and my parents were... I mean, my dad was disappointed. I was a bit like, how dare you, <laughs> yeah. idiot. Yeah, uh, you've so, been sending me yeah, down there. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so then I was just like, okay, this is mad. And by this point, when I was... After my GCSEs, my dad had left my mum for a, um, a woman... A woman, a girl. A girl. Yes. Who's, in the book, you change her name, don't you? Yes, yeah. yes. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and I think it's um, it's not a story about her, and I don't, I find it, it's important that it's about me, because, you know, mm. that's her pain, that's her story, and yeah. I, I don't want it to be about her. Uh, so it's just about Dad. But it's sort of, it was just sort of part of his behaviour, mm. which wasn't good behaviour. But suffice to say, with him having moved out of the house and me realising that if I didn't sort of knuckle down, I would not reach my potential as a human being. Mm. So I cleaned up my act a bit and and really concentrated at school for my own and did well. And and, and via that ended up going to Cambridge to do classics and then from from there sort of Mm. forged a different life for myself. Yeah. And sort of leaving behind the old life, but in a way that wasn't necessarily that healthy, because I was almost pretending to be someone different. Like I mm. did, people didn't really know about my childhood, um, and then I kind of got jobs, became a journalist, became kind of mm. relatively successful. We'd end up having kind of dinner parties with sort of posh people in posh places. They're like, oh, so you know, do you have a sister? And they'd be like. <laughs> Oh, funny you should ask. So, <laughs> where do I start and where do I end yeah, with telling yeah. my life story? So often I just wouldn't. Yeah. And then I would just say, yeah, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Because when I think back to when I first met you, which was, you were probably about 12, 13, and mm. then a couple of years later in Knightsbridge, and I just remember you and all your school friends. Mm. And I always used to say they've got the, they've got the Chelsea hair that, mm. you know, it was the long blonde, it was mm. blow-dried, it was flicking about. It's, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> as a hairdresser, it's the first thing I remember. <laughs> and then the, the short skirts. And, yeah. and as, as I say, I mean, I knew in Knightsbridge there was, it was a different atmosphere in there, mm. in the salon. And, you know, I mean, we used to, you know, come in in the morning and I remember wiping cocaine off the back mirrors to show somebody their hair and stuff <laughs> like that. Which I just thought was hilarious yes. at the time. But I remember, you know, sort of thinking, God, something's going to go tragically wrong here. Mm. And I think, you know, for somebody like yourself, what was amazing is that you turned it around suddenly, didn't you? After your GCSEs, you yeah. went, do you know what? Actually, this isn't what... This isn't what I want to be. This I isn't want to be. No, I just, it's not... I, and, and also because I could see where that ended. Like, I knew enough people who I was like, what, so what is it that I'm going to be if I keep mm. down this path? Because yeah. I'm not good enough to be a hairdresser. 
you know. Mm. So what, am I going to work in a bar on the King's Road and sell a bit of coke on the side and, you know, get kind of rich men to buy me drinks? I mean, what is it that I'm going to be? Yeah. And I didn't want that. Which is amazing that you had that (laughs) thought, do you know what I mean? And went, whoa, stop a minute. Yeah, hang on, yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know how it... Do any of your other friends that were in that, where are they now? Do you know? Are you sort of I mean, everyone's, with... yeah, I'm in touch with a lot of people. And then I'm not in touch with a lot of people. I mm. think um, part of, you know, I still have some really close friends from that time. Um, you know, we're all survivors, actually. Yeah. We're all yeah. survivors. Um, but we all have scars. Yeah. And that's sort of inevitable. And your scars do make you beautiful, but sometimes things still do come mm. back to bite you. And you do you ever you know, talk about those scars with each other? Just yeah, definitely, definitely mm. we do. Yeah, because yeah. it's these things still bubble up sometimes. These yeah. still, these things still, you know, it's the past isn't in a box. It no. still come, you know, it still has yeah. its power over you. Well, do you know what was interesting as well, which I want to move on to, because obviously there's so many stories from your childhood and that era, which. Really, I think people should read the book and hear more. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> Definitely. Well, because we could talk about it, you know, mm. all afternoon and evening, but you've also got somewhere to go. I... <laughs> to see Ross and Miranda. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> to see your sister and stuff. I know that you decided to go and have therapy. Yes. Because, you, again, you talk about this in the book. It's not mm. a secret necessarily. No. Yeah, and what I found so interesting is that you did therapy years later, and it was about dealing with grief in a way, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and really? trauma as uh, well, yeah. because, you know, watching my sister die was such a traumatic experience, mm. and it almost sort of froze me in space and time, and it made me quite numb to emotion. So I didn't, I knew that I could, I knew that I could survive anything, mm. But that's because I had on all this sort of ragged old armour. And I sort of needed to be vulnerable again. I needed to, you know, you only feel love if you let yourself feel sadness. And I wasn't letting myself feel anything. And I got to the age of 35 or whatever. And I'd not had any therapy, which is, you know, when I told friends that they were like, that is insane. Mm. Like considering the life that you've had. Yeah. So um, actually, no. Later, like forties, I hadn't had any. Mm. So it was when, and I, and I think the reason that I started having therapy was because I have two daughters, and their age gap is very similar to the age gap between Candy and I. Um, and there was one day when they were quite little, and I was watching them playing together in a park. And I just suddenly had this horrible realization that I couldn't remember my sister at all. Mm. I, I like all memory of her had been erased, and it's like I'd done it to myself. Because I had so, I'd worked so hard to not, to escape my childhood and mm-hmm. to, to make a new life for myself. That I'd sort of, and all the drinking, all the drugs, and also not having any counselling. No one wanted to talk to us about Candy dying. Mm-hmm. No one at school wanted to talk to me about it. So I hadn't gone through any processes with it. So I had no memory of her and that made me mm-hmm. feel very sad and it felt very self-inflicted. Uh, so the first thing I did was start trying to write about it because writing, I've always written and writing mm. is a way that I deal with stuff. But that almost made it worse because I had so much kind of crap to deal with. Yeah. And so many memories and so much kind of chaos and trauma that I was just, I almost felt like I was, it was overwhelming me. Mm. 
so then I went to therapy and that was she was just brilliant she's called Fiona McKinney and she's a really wonderful therapist and very kind of kind and gentle she who did EMDR yeah, with, that's right yeah yeah, yeah. so we did which EMDR. Was fascinating yeah because I've had a bit of therapy over the years yeah, as well yeah I mean and it's really wonderful because it just helps you and that's a really specific therapy for people who've experienced trauma and have PTSD it's sort of if you've seen something horrible or been part of something so stressful it's not like you remember it and it's in the past when you think about it it's like now your body feels exactly the same as it did at that moment and that's how I was I went if I tried to think about my sister all I thought about was standing in a room watching her die yeah. so what the EMDR does is sort of through this process where you sort of your it's electro it's like eye movement desensitization where you kind of watch something moving back and forth as you're thinking of a memory just sort of flip something in your brain so it becomes a memory rather than a constantly relived mm. experience oh wow mm. that's interesting because i had i went for hypnotherapy oh wow amongst yeah. other things like mm. you i had acupuncture as yes. well and because i was um a lot of people who know me know that i've suffered from anxiety and for years and you know it's it's I always say it's a thing that's ongoing and turns up and down like a dimmer switch that you don't have your fingers on yes yes (laughs) luckily I've got it a lot more under control now as I've gotten older but you know for me there was a whole thing so my father had a nervous breakdown when I was really young and you know he tried to kill himself by suicide twice but the second time I saw because he was at home and I was like 11 years old and I could just hear screaming in the house and I came downstairs and he was in the corner of the room Bloody with hell. a knife, you know, my mum screaming at him to stop. Yeah. And in a, obviously my father never died, thank God, at that point. But um, The fear and the trauma the of seeing The fear and the that. trauma of that. Mm. And it wasn't until years later it affected me and mm. had a, you know, and I realised I, when I started having anxiety attacks and things, at first I had no idea what they were, mm. what was going on. And I just was like, well, I'm having a bit of a funny turn. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And as I got older, I realised there were things that I'd not dealt with. And like you, you know, even with that, I mean, my school were told that my father was ill. Mm. But no one ever discussed it. Yeah. All the, all my mum did was went and told them about it. And bless my mum, she did as much as she could to protect us mm. from what was happening with him. But the schools, they were just told to keep an eye on me. And that was it. Yeah. You know, and I think... These things suddenly rear their head years mm. later, don't they, as you get older? Because they are, like you say, they're memories you almost try and just pretend. Yeah, because you can't, I mean, how can we deal with that? You couldn't deal with that at 11. No. Uh, but no. then you, you know, you can't deal with it at 21, 31. You no. know? And it's so, it's such an overwhelming thing to see also the person who's meant to be in control in your life, the person who's meant to make everything safe, and suddenly everything is not safe. Suddenly yeah. Thing, yeah. everything is dangerous. No, totally. And so it was, you know, it was an interesting process for me yeah. as well, all the different things that I tried. And I did acupuncture as well, which mm. I know you did. Which, yes. And I, that story of when you... Oh, I know. It's very mad. So Kelly, I have a wonderful uh, acupuncturist. Um, I see two acupuncturists, Ross Barr and Laura Jones. And they're very different. They're both wonderful different ways, but Laura's quite woo-woo. What makes you see two, by the way? Just so well, they just, you know, they like them both. They just <laughs> right. sort of serve different purposes. But yeah. although what, um, Ross is a five-element acupuncturist, so he's slightly oh, different. Yeah. So she's a TMC, traditional Chinese medicine, TCM. So they're slightly different approaches. Laura also does Reiki while she's treating you, mm. which I've never really understood. But I went to see her one time. It's just facial acupuncture, which is sort of like a holistic 
Botox, I think. <laughs> That's what I call it anyway. Yeah. So she put those needles in your face. Oh, I was going to help with my wrinkles. Amazing. <laughs> but I went and she'd always done Reiki. And then she sort of started doing the Reiki. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. I've got to, I've got to leave. There's someone here. And I was like, what? So yes, there's a, there's a small girl sitting in the corner. And she, she smells very powerfully of sweets. Could this be anyone? Do you know? And I had never written about my sister at this point. I'd mm. barely spoken about her to anyone. So I was like, so yeah, she's very impatient. She doesn't know what happened to her. And I was like, oh. Wow. Uh, because, you know, my sister died suddenly in the night. Mm. Of course she doesn't know what happened to her. And then no one spoke about her mm. for 30 years. So of course she's impatient. Uh, I mean, you know, there are a billion different ways of interpreting this. But anyway, I just chose to go with it. She said, okay, I'm, I'm afraid this energy is too strong mm. in the room and you need to talk to her. You need to tell her what happened. So I was like, okay. I was like, how do I do that? No, do I have to say it out loud? Because yeah. I felt very, you know, quite a self-conscious yeah. person. She said, no, no, you can do it with your head, but I'm just going to go. Just have a chat with her. So I did. I just sort of imagined her coming and sort of sitting on the bed with me and lying on me and I imagined stroking her head and how that would feel. And I imagined saying, explaining to her exactly what happened to her mm. and what, then what happened to us after she'd gone and how mm. her death had sort of just sort of been like a bomb exploding in our family and it sort of destroyed us all in different ways. And then so did that and that felt like quite a powerful thing to do. And then Laura came back in. She was like, oh, yes, that's much better. Oh. I was like, yeah. oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Amazing. Yeah. All right, so the sweet sugary smell's gone, has it? Good, mm. good, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was bonkers. It's amazing when those things happen, isn't it? Mm. I've not had that happen in acupuncture, but I have. I don't think many people have. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I've not yeah. lost a sister, but yeah. I did have a time with hypnotherapy yeah. where... Because I I feel with any kind of therapy of you know especially holistic side you've got to you've got to believe it's it's going to work but I think you've also just got to let yourself go yeah because you? yeah, a yeah. lot of people a friend of mine went to the same hypnotherapist so I've got to tell the story and she called me a couple of weeks later she went, I mean I don't know what that's all about me it's really expensive nothing happened and I said but what were you expecting to mm. she went, I don't really know she goes I don't even know if I was hypnotized and I went well what did you go for yeah. she went well because you went. <laughs> So I just want the thing to happen to me that yeah. too. And I said, yeah, but I went for a specific reason. Yeah. You can't just go. You can't just go and wait yeah. for something to happen. But yeah, what was funny was he tapped into something that mm. happened to me years before, right. which was somebody attacked me and strangled me. And when that happened, mm. I was so traumatised by the whole thing. Because I thought I was going to die. Yeah. And I just basically blocked it out of my memory and pretended it never happened. And he somehow found mm. it in my subconscious mm. And I remember sort of coming out, because he always says to me, you can come out of the hypnotherapy if you want to. Mm. You won't be so deep that you can't come yeah. out of it. And I remember shooting about the seat Oof. and being like, what was that? And he was like, what did you see? And then when I told him, and he was like, you've not dealt with this. Yeah. It's still in your subconscious, floating yeah. around. And it was funny, because for a couple of weeks afterwards, I remember I used to phone him going, I don't know what to do with this information. Mm. And then he was like, we need to put it in a box and close it up again. But yeah. It's so weird when those things happen, is it? And somebody finds yeah, something. Yeah, it just suddenly pops out and you have been working so hard for so many years <laughs> to like not engage with this stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally. So after you carried on and you say you went to Cambridge. Yes, I did. How was that? I loved it. It was amazing. I was yeah. so happy. I was so happy because I sort of got to turn up and be a different person. Like, you know, at school, everyone knew everything about me. Everyone knew mm. that my sister had died, that my dad had taken drugs and you know left yeah, home everywhere yeah and I just right. felt sort of so sort of sullied by it all weirdly and then yeah. I could turn up and just 
like a geeky kind of, you know. Yeah. What were you studying there? Latin and Greek. Oh my God, are you mad? Yes, quite mad. <laughs> I loved it. It was amazing. Mind you, I've got to tell everybody that's listening, when Govanda arrived, she said she'd just come from another course that you're yeah, studying. Yeah, doing a master's degree in, in Renaissance intellectual history, yes. in which I'm doing a lot of Latin, a lot of Neo-Latin. It was mm. a lot of fun. What's the difference? Uh, so, so Latin, classical Latin is Latin that's written in Rome, in sort of, you know, ancient Rome, in, right. you know, 2 AD or whatever. Mm. And Neo-Latin is Latin that is written. So in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, the main language of science, diplomacy, poetry was Latin. So mm. people wrote and composed in Latin. So Milton, Newton, you know, they all wrote in Latin. Everything, mm. all kind of Christian texts are written in Latin. So... Right. If you were an educated person mm. who was writing a history or whatever, you would write in Latin. Queen Elizabeth wrote letters to her friends in Latin. Oh wow! Mm. So Neo Latin is not is the Latin that was written kind of post medieval times. Yeah. Oh wow, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So you finished Cambridge. Yeah. Where, what was your first job? Because now, what would you say you are now? A journalist. So now I'm a sort of journalist writer person author scholar <laughs> uh yeah so i do a lot of different bits and bobs but so i um i mean my, my main kind of work at the moment is i interview celebrities for magazines really, yeah uh, which is a fun job um so after cambridge my first job was at the daily mail on weekend magazine so mm-hmm. i was like a features assistant there then i went and i worked on the mail on female which is on the main paper as a writer then I went to the Independent on Sunday as a features writer and features editor. Then I went to ES magazine and was sort of features editor, deputy editor, variously. Which, by the way, just dropping this in, mm. which is when I think I first saw your name again. Right, yes. And I remember probably. thinking, hang on. Hang on. Mm. There aren't many Gavanta <laughs> Hodges in this world. <laughs> there can't be many. So, yeah, so, and I worked there on and off for about 10 years with various editors and had my babies while I was there and sort of did maternity leaves and was always trying to write at the same time. And then I went to Tatler to go and work for Kate Reardon, who was the then editor, and I was her deputy for five years. And we had a really wonderful time, and that was really fun. But it was also quite weird, because, you know, I turned up there. By this point, my dad had died. And, you know, I'm not... I, I might sound posh, but I'm really not posh, you know. My mum's <laughs> from Wanstead, and my dad's from Bromley. But uh, but they just sent me to a posh school. Mm. And I turn up at Tatler, and, you know, one of the first things they say to me on the features desk is, you are the least posh person on the features desk. I was like, well, good really? to know, thank you. Where, you. Yeah, where's the toilet? They're like... <gasps> Toilet. Yeah, bathroom. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's a powder room. So. Oh, yeah. It's Lou. Oh, Lou. Lav. Mm. Yeah. So one of the first things I did to sort of get a sense of what this place was and that I was going to be working at and trying to sort of commission pieces for and write for, I would go through all the old archive issues of Tatler from the 80s. And as I was looking through, there's just all these pictures of all the Aristos who sort of were flopped out on the floor in the living room after taking yeah. drugs. So it's all the people that dad has sold drugs to were mm. just in the page of this magazine. I was like, whoa. I know them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My life, everything is all kind of crashing together. Well, I remember some of the ones I remember. Uh, Lady Alethea. Yes, poor Alethea. She died. She died, didn't she, of an overdose? Yeah. I'm only allowed to name the ones who died. Oh, are you? Just to say, just before you start <laughs> saying their names. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's somebody that is mentioned in your book, isn't there, who oh, yeah. um, you approached. Um, yes, yes. I mean, I suppose... Again, you know, there are people who are famously junkies and also aristocrats, mm-hmm. so you can write about. But at the same time, 
again, it's this thing that this is my story and... It's not theirs. It's not theirs. And, you know, because when they were 22, they passed out on a carpet in a flat in Battersea while a nine-year-old girl watched them. Hmm. They maybe weren't expecting 35 years later to have that written about in a book. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about it that way before. So, yes, yeah, so you ended up with Tatley. You actually became then the standing editor, didn't you? Yes, because Kate went off on maternity leave, so I became editor. And yeah. it was while I was editor that I decided to start writing about my childhood, that I began freaking out, that I went to therapy. So it was all sort of happening yeah. at once. What was the catalyst for the book, though? What made you go? It was a lot of things happening at once. So this re- realisation that I had no memories of candy. I went to see a really, for work, to do an interview, I went to see a really wonderful therapist called Julia Samuel, who's very famous now. She writes a lot about grief. And I was meant to be interviewing her about something else completely, but she sort of somehow intuited that I had this grief that I had yet to deal with. Mm. And she sort of started asking me about it. And I told her and I burst into tears. And she was like, you really need to get some therapy. You you would find it really helpful. So the therapy and the book were all kind of intermingled for me Mm. because I, you know, writing helps me put the world in order. Mm -hmm. And also I had this idea that I could make, I would make myself better. I would heal myself if I turned something that was so sad and so ugly and upsetting into beautiful words Mm. that would kind of make it all better. Yeah. And, And I also kind of thought... I have had an extraordinary life, an extraordinary experience, and maybe by writing about it and writing about how I sort of came out the other side, that might help other people who've experienced difficulty. And one of the lovely things in writing the book and having people chat to me about it is discovering that other people have had similar situations. You know, I thought I was the only girl who had that kind of upbringing, those kind of experiences, but actually you know, it's not, there are other people, and then you feel less lonely. Do you feel that people contacted you and said, wow, the book really resonated? Yeah, it really resonated. You've vocalised things that I feel, you know, you put in words. Because you know what, I have to say, Amanda, one of the things about the book that I think is amazing is your honesty in it. Oh. I mean, you don't, not don't the, hold back. You don't hold back, <laughs> but I mean that in a good way, though. Yeah, Do you know I, what I mean? You I know? think when you write a book, and when I definitely when I wrote that book, I had to write it and not imagine that anyone was ever going to read it. Mm. because you can't be sort of super well like oh god people I don't know are just going to be reading about this like awful sort of bad sex I had when I was 15 <laughs> or you know the embarrassing thing I did when mm. I was 17 or this terrible moment just have to be like I'm just going to put it all out there all the pain all the suffering but then all the beauty and all the fun and all the nuance and complication of life because you know mm. it's never simple it's never black and white just going to put it all out there and, and your your husband you're right you're married yes I'm yeah. married yeah. so your husband mm. What did he think after reading the book? Because I know you mentioned in the book that um, he didn't. He always felt like you never talked about. Yeah, I things, mean, I, you, so. he sort of read bits as we went along, and he found it, it kind of overwhelming sometimes and upsetting. Mm. And a lot of my friends found it upsetting. You know, a lot of the people who love me find it upsetting mm. to see to read about how sad I've been. But then also, you know, it's a it's a ultimately a book about kind of surviving and getting to the other side and about love and how you, we are healed through yeah. loving each other and like recognising that love and loss are just two sides of the same coin. So mm. I think he felt that he felt that at the end of it I was a more whole person and mm. I you know and and our family was made more whole by that as well. Did you feel relieved when it was were you like that? 
like your shoulders dropped. Well, or... it, it's sort of the process of writing it felt like I felt gradually happier as I like in the early stages of writing it. It was really hard, and sometimes I'd come away and feel really kind of like oh. But as I kind of worked through it and worked through the therapy, it became an easier process. Although having said that, when I so I had to read it and you were listening to it for the audio, mm. and that made me feel very upset. Just re mm. reading out my words, you know, this stuff never it's not it doesn't stop hurting just because you've written a book about yeah, it. Yeah, of course, it's yeah. still painful, and it's important for me because I, you know, I talk about it and I've talked about it on various occasions to remember that this is stuff that happened to me it's not just an anecdote it's not just sort of mm. a funny story it's it's real it's my emotion it's my mm. life and to sort of hold on to that and and is important as well i think so will there be another book yes but i don't think another memoir right. i don't think i could do another memoir it was no. it was so painful and as i said and the hard bit was the, the places where it sort of overlapped with other people's lives and that was sort of quite a delicate thing to mm. engage with so no i'm writing a fiction but i've got to finish my master's degree first <laughs> got so many things to do I know. and what, what are you working on right now besides that i mean are you working for a publication or uh, yeah so i do lots of stuff for times lux mm -hmm. uh which is the sort of it comes out every couple of months it's like a luxury supplement mm -hmm. i do interviews for style magazine for for the Sunday Times. I'm about to do something for the Evening Standard. I just do bits and bobs. Do you like here, doing the interviews? Yeah, I love them. It's really fun. It's really yeah. interesting. So do a lot of that and try and juggle that with the kids. I mean, it's been a hard old year having the kids at home for most Ugh, of it. Yeah, with the kids, imagine. with and with you know promoting the the book that I've written and thinking about a new book that I'm going to write, mm. and then also doing the master's degree, which was a curveball that I myself threw into my life, but I've really enjoyed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so a lot, a lot, sort of juggling. Do you was your the response to the book was it a surprise? You, well, I published sort of it like... in lockdown, so it was published on the 14th of May last year. So it. I kind of I had anticipated being able to go out and meet people and sign it and do yeah. events and I didn't have any of that so that was quite odd but then it was you know it was really lovely the reviews were really wonderful and it was all really positive and I felt really happy that people had enjoyed it and yeah. people read it you know you do these things and you sort of there are so many books that are written yeah and in a way, the worst thing that is can happen to them is that no one reads them yeah. so <laughs> the reviews were incredible and I think. You know, I like I say, I sat and read some of them um, over the weekend because I just was like, just wanted to remind myself what people did say about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, they was they were all positive, yeah, weren't they? Which yeah. was, I was amazing. Very lucky. Yeah. Thank you. And, yeah, and it's just gone to paperback, hasn't it? It has. Now? It's just gone to paperback about a couple of months ago. So that's all exciting, and that's done well. And I wrote a couple more pieces around that, mm. and. Just when you know, yeah. So it's just it just kind of rolls on. Really. Do you feel at some point it could be turned into some kind of? Yes, it has been optioned. Oh, it I'm has. not allowed to give any more details though, because I've signed some kind of massive clause about this. But right, yes, it has okay. been optioned. Yeah. So hopefully that because it all... would make an amazing. Yeah, it would make good good telly so TV or even a film, film actually. Yeah. Can so I that... just can I just put my hand up? So yeah. Can I have a cameo? Oh yes, yeah. you can be in the back there. The <laughs> I want to be dryer. one of the hairdressers yeah, like in Knightsbridge, sighing as the girls yeah. are there. I think I've got long hair then. Do you know? So I have to wear a wig. Miranda, Miranda could do that for you. She's yeah, good with wigs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or I could even do my own. Yeah, I mean, you could do you know, your hair dressing. Well, I think yeah. me and Miranda should be in the salon working. Yes, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, definitely. Sighing. Yeah, like, yeah. 
Because it would, and do you feel happy about that happening? Yeah, I'd love to see that. Because I guess that's more exposure for the story. Yeah, I just think it'd be fun. And also, do you know what? Like, as my mum feels, you know, she's just so happy that Candy's on the cover of the book. It makes her really happy to think that her memory, and she's talked about, she's thought about my dad. If he was being portrayed in a film or TV show, he would be so happy he would be over the moon yeah you know and we're like who's gonna play him you know yeah. so yeah, that would genuinely well, like, it would be that would make that his he afterlife ever wanted, yeah it? exactly totally <laughs> knowing him like i did as well yeah, exactly. he, he was kind of a celebrity anyway yeah and he it? just was such a big personality and he's sort of a gift for a kind of for dramatization i think so yeah so just to know that if that did happen dad would just be over the flipping moon and so uh, what what was your mom's feelings about it it was difficult for her to read the book but ultimately it was a really positive process for us mm. as, as a mother and daughter. Did she find it quite cathartic? Yeah, I think she did, ultimately. She did find it cathartic and she found it, you know, we talked in a way about Candy that we'd never done and I think that was a super positive thing. Mm. And how's she doing, by the way? She's okay, yeah. you know, up and down. You know, I yeah. think she's older and she's got some physical infirmities and I think no one, no one came out of lockdown looking particularly great. No, I gained a few pounds. So did I. (laughs) Nice floppy. Do you want to ask you one question? Yes. I remember when we met before, Mm. you said to me that some people found it weird that you still loved your dad after what he did. Mm. How do you feel about that? I just feel like the world's a complicated place. Mm. You know, and I think when you haven't experienced the things that I've experienced, it's easy to look at something from the outside and judge. I think, oh, that's a terrible thing. He's a Mm. terrible man. How can anyone forgive that? Mm. But he was a terrible man, but he was also a wonderful man. And he was complicated. You know, no villain is completely evil and no good person is completely perfect. And so he had both in him. Mm. And I loved the part of him that was wonderful. And I was furious with the part of him that was terrible. Yeah. So it's, you know, life isn't simple. And when it's your father, it's hard yeah, not to love really them, isn't hard. it? I mean, I'm sure it's hard. It's not if if he was a complete like unremitting arsehole, I wouldn't love him. But he wasn't. He was no. so wonderful. Yeah. He was the funnest, craziest, and he was incredibly loving and incredibly loyal. And I've mm. had, you know, when I published the book, a lot of people got in touch with memories of Dad saying how wonderful he was. Well, I'd say I've got fun. I've got yeah. such fun memories of and him. And he could be a complete pain in the arse but he yeah. could also be really wonderful and he could be very loyal mm. so yeah he's you know he was a mixed bag so I just think they're lucky to have never had that sort of complication in their life if it's so easy for them to judge yeah yeah I mean I like I say I've got such fond memories of mm. him and he was actually so supportive of me yeah at the time when if I he was could support people him. he really would oh god yeah. it was he would give you his last penny mm. if he mm. had to wouldn't he yeah yeah or he'd yeah. definitely share his last Drink with you. He didn't, he didn't often have very many pennies. But, yeah, you know, yeah. He always had a beer. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, definitely. So, well, we're looking forward to your next book. Oh, thank and what you. you write. Just to finish off, I always do a quick fire round with Ooh, people, okay. just for a bit of fun. Yes. You can answer with one word, a sentence, okay. a song. First off, what's your guilty pleasure? Now that's a hard one because I I don't believe in guilt. I think. Do you know what? Somebody did say, yeah. why should there be guilt in pleasure? No, exactly. I just think if I enjoy it, I was going to say Marmite on Toast, but that's not guilty. That's amazing. No, that's you know? amazing. So, I do, mine is buying trainers, though, because I think uh, I do love it. Yeah, I mean, but if it makes you happy, it's not good. I mean, it do you know what I think? Yeah. yeah. Favourite drink? 
what do you call it? Tonic <laughs> with a big ice cube and a slice of lime, and then normally accompanied with some really posh crisps. Oh, any particular brand? Kettle crisps. I like the balsamic vinegar. Oh, also some nice olives. Yeah, I mean, I'd much prefer snacks to actual food. Yeah. If you could be invisible for a day, Ooh. what would you do and where would you go? Again, don't know. Where do, oh, I suppose I'd like to go into kind of lots of really cool, mad, how like posh old houses and look at old libraries and things because I really love old mm. places and I'm really annoyed that there are beautiful pieces like Greek and Roman sort of artefacts that people have in their houses and they're not sharing them. And I think that's really despicable, yeah. actually, that there are kind of beautiful artworks that rich people just keep secret behind yeah, doors. And so I'm going to go into all their houses and look at them and I might even steal them. <laughs> and take them to the National Gallery and put yeah, them so everyone can have totally. a look at them. You know what mine would be? I thought, and I, people will have heard this before on my other podcast, but I'd love to go to Buckingham Palace for the day and be invisible around mm. the Queen and hear her real conversations. Oh, really? Especially <laughs> yeah, right now. Chuntering away. Yeah. About, you know, certain royals who supposedly yeah. done some things they shouldn't have done. <laughs> Chips or chocolate? Chocolate, I think, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah, on balance. Crisps or chocolate harder? Chips? Not so mad about mm-hmm. chips. Okay. If you could be a superhero, who mm. would you choose? Thor. <laughs> But I don't. I, but that's because I fancy Thor. But that's so that's weird. But anyway, I just you could can't inhabit his. Maybe just nice to inhabit his body. Is yeah. that weird? No, that's not weird. <laughs> what would be your dream job right now? I'm really happy with the one I have. Oh, okay. So if you know if this books get published and I can just keep doing what I'm doing now, I'd yeah, be happy. You're living the dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A karaoke song of choice. Oh, you're so vain by Carly Simon. That's a good one. What would you say is your best feature or personality trait? I think I'm quite funny. <laughs> I don't know. I like you know. I just I'm, I love my friends, and I sort of I think I'm quite kind and loyal. Yeah, and that's quite a good personality yeah. trait. Sweet or sour? I like umami. I like like things like parmesan and you know that kind of stuff and yeah. mushrooms, which is neither of those no, things. That's neither so do I have to be sweet or sour? No. Okay. You can say neither. Sorry. (laughs) What language would you love to be able to speak fluently that you don't already? Because knowing you, you probably do. I'd like to speak Russian. Because I'd like to be able to read Russian. So Mm. I love Russian literature. It'd be really fun to be able to read it in the original. Yeah. (laughs) This is a funny one. It sort of goes back to what we said. Who would you like to play you in a film of your life? Oh, well, see, I... hmm, Who would I like to play me? I thought Florence Pugh would do a good job. (gasps) Yeah. Because I remember meeting her when she was about 21 at a party and I looked at her and I thought, bloody hell, you look exactly the same as I look when I was your age. Mm. Slightly messy. <laughs> Slightly unwashed hair. <laughs> and I'm going to throw in another question mm. here. Who would you like to play your dad in a film? Well, that's a really good question. It's, it's, it's what's sad is that Oliver Reed is no longer with us. Yes. Because I feel like he would have been... He would have been ideal, but yeah. when he was young. Yeah, exactly, when he was younger. And, you know, Michael Sheen, if he was a slightly bigger man, because yeah. he's, he's very good at sort of doing impersonations. So yeah, he, he, he has that sort of slightly sort of that charisma and also that kind of restlessness mm, about him. Yeah. No, I think he'd be mm, quite good, actually. Yeah. Do you have a beauty regime? Kind of. I mean, I still go and see Laura for facial acupuncture. I mean, not really. I just sort of clean my face. And Do you wear makeup, on. really? Yeah. It's... Yeah, I've got a bit on. Yeah. yeah. You've got a bit of mascara <laughs> on. I've got a bit of mascara on, yeah. I'm not yeah. crazy. I mean, I don't know how to do contouring, for instance. Oh, I don't God, know what people then... do. 
Yeah, I mean, I just saw, as a, like like Dad doing my hair, I do the same makeup as I did when I was 14, pretty mm. much. Not, not much has changed. Although I don't have the beige lipstick that we all had in the 90s. <laughs> no. Who does your hair now? Yes. And do you still enjoy going to the hairdressers? Oh, I love going to the hairdressers. John and Debbie are amazing. So John Vial, he's wonderful. And Debbie Bowmick, who is, I think, at Nicky Clark now. Right. My sister also does my hair. So if I go to LA, she's like, you're not blonde enough. That's not blonde. And she I'm wants like, you LA blonde. Yeah, she's like that. I was like oh. Hollywood blonde. Yeah, I was like, I thought I was quite. She's no, she said like, that's not blonde. That's brown. I was like, oh, God, it's all right. So she she goes for it. Right. Then you have to turn it down. With you. I know. When I get back and Debbie's like, okay, I see. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do love it. It looks amazing. I'm like, I'm so blonde. Yeah. But it's yeah. When you get back to London, a bit like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's. A, do you know what it is as well? Don't you think the sun in LA? And yeah. Like, yeah. You can be blonder and it's not so... It doesn't look so sort of like intense. No, and then when you get back here, you're like with a grey sky. Yeah, a bit like, oh, I need to be a bit more biallage. <laughs> okay, this is a funny one. Have you ever done anything illegal besides taking drugs and drinking as a teenager? Mm, I guess. I mean, I'm not very good with rules. I mean, I'm not mm. as bad with rules as my sister and my dad. I mean, Miranda and Gavin are not rule uh, mm. abiders. But, you know, I'm a bit sort of... Mm. Devil make it. I mean, not really, no. No. No, you know, I've never robbed a bank. No. Honestly. Maybe that's the next book. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How I would rob a bank. Yeah. <laughs> Last question, which I've thrown this in right mm. literally this afternoon because I just thought it'd be quite a funny one to answer. How do you feel about ABBA coming back? Oh, I love ABBA. <laughs> my, for my 40th birthday, we had a party and it was Woodstock meets King Arthur or Woodstock meets Excalibur, and it, the happiest moment was my living room full of people dressed either as hippies or medieval knights dancing to Gimme Gimme Gimme, because I just think that's the best pop song ever. Oh my God, it, isn't it just it's the best song? It's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, if they're going to be creating more sort of things that change the world in mm. that way, then yeah. yes, amazing. Have you heard the new song, a couple of new songs? Not really, no. I've, I've been a bit busy writing my master's thing. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> The, one of them is very ballady, mm-hmm. which my mum loved and she was in tears when mm-hmm. we were listening to it the other day. The other one's slightly more upbeat. I mean, okay. I'm waiting for a gimme, gimme, gimme yeah, moment. I mean, that's what we need. We need but another, I don't know yeah. whether there is one. I mean, those, in are, the those, bag. those are like magic moments that only probably happen once every yeah. millennium, aren't they? Yeah. So. And talking about gimme, 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 then, how did you feel when Madonna used I love it that as, song. I have to say, I one of my favourite Madonna absolutely songs. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised they gave her permission, but know, I'm glad the they did. Yeah, I think because it, it, it also it always takes you back to "Gimme, Gimme, Gimme." I think. Yeah. You after you hear that, you just you feel thirsty for for listening. Yeah, to it. you, you feel like never you have enough. To put, gimme, gimme, yeah, gimme. Yeah, that, that's like the snack, and then you have a cup of dinner, <laughs> which is "Gimme, Gimme, Gimme." Yeah. Well, thank you, Gavandra. Oh, thank you for it's having so me. Lovely to talk to you. It's really fun. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes. I, I wanted to talk about the book, obviously, for people to know about it. Yeah. But I also wanted to talk about you Aww. and, you know, who you are now. Yeah. And, you know, because you are such a wonderful person. And especially everything that you went through and have been through. Mm. And I just think it's, what well, I think is such a great story to see people coming out the other side. Yeah. And it shows that it's, it can be done. Yeah. yeah. And I've saved on it pretty well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, my interview with Gavandra's sister, Miranda, is on the other episode released today. By the way, there is a unique podcast episode now available that's been filmed for my YouTube channel, Neil Moody, called Minding the Gap, Male Suicide Awareness. 
I'm talking with my guest Tom Chapman, world-renowned barber and founder of the charity Lion Barbers Collective, who specialise in training barbers and hairdressers to recognise mental health issues in clients, and Rosie Tapner, model turned TV presenter who is the ambassador for wellbeing of women and children's air ambulance. We are discussing the importance of continuing to raise male suicide awareness, especially within certain communities where it is still a taboo subject. Series 1 and 2 of In Bed with Neil Moody are also available on all podcast platforms. And remember to subscribe to be notified of any up and coming episodes.